This is Fresh Matters, and I am Papa Kwesi Endong. In a previous podcast, I talked about fixing the Ghana 1992 Constitution. In that podcast, I discussed the need to elect all the members of the assemblies, the metropolitan municipal district assemblies in the country to form the foundation for practical people-centered democracy all over the country. And if we were going to do that, elect all of the members of the assemblies, we would have to remove the provision in the 1992 constitution that gives the right to the president of the republic to appoint a third of the members of all of the assemblies in the country. I gave also in that podcasts, I gave the reason why the, the chief executives of the metropolitan, municipal, and district assemblies, the reasons why they should also be elected directly by the people. And then I talked about the need to separate the legislature meaning Ghana's parliament from the executive, also meaning the presidency, in order to strengthen accountability and ensure the existence of separation of powers properly. This at various times I have called giving power giving power to the legislature by taking some of it from the executive. And in recent weeks in Ghana, there have been events involving the executive and parliament, some back and forths, Twos and froze. And it has brought up the question again of, well, where does the executive begin and end? And where does the legislature begin and end? And why are some of us calling for separation of the two so that proper accountability 
and the exercise of authority independently by parliament, the legislature, can happen. I have been called upon by various people to clarify what I meant by this separating parliament from the presidency or the legislature from the executive. So I want to make it clear. And in order to make it clear, I want to go straight to the 1992 Constitution itself, the document itself, and what does it say? What does it say specifically that moves some of us to say, let's amend it. Let's amend that portion. So what does it say? And here I'm referring to chapter eight. Chapter eight of the 1992 Constitution, which has the title, The Executive. And there you would find on section 78, where it talks about ministers of state, it says, ministers of state shall be appointed by the president with the prior approval of parliament from among members of parliament or persons qualified to be elected as members of parliament, except that the majority of ministers of state shall be appointed from among members of parliament. It then goes on to say that the president shall appoint such number of ministers of state as may be necessary for the efficient running of the state. Now let's examine this. So this constitution, if you go to section eight, what it is saying is that the majority of the members of, of, of the cabinet of the ministers of state must be appointed by the president from within, from within parliament. Now, this is what then puts parliament and the executive together. That is, the minister of state can also be a member of parliament. What some of us are saying is that if, for whatever reason, a president finds it necessary to appoint a member of parliament as a minister of state, that minister, that person, should resign their position as a member of parliament so that somebody else can go to parliament and exercise the rights of a parliamentarian. In reviewing what the executive does and brings to parliament in enacting laws for the people of the Republic of Ghana. Now, I have been a minister of state before, and I've said that before as well. I've been a minister of state 
when I was not a member of parliament. I have been a member of parliament when I was not a minister of state. And then I have also been a minister of state and a member of parliament at the same time. So I'd like to say that I know what I'm talking about, that I have observed and experienced and lived this practically. So I have seen and experienced what works and what does not work. What we do today, what Ghanaians do today, you will get the Minister of State who is sitting in the cabinet with the president. They will decide what is it that they want to do. Take for instance, they will decide on what budget, how much money is needed to run the programs of the state. So they will sit as, as cabinet and make that decision. And in making this decision, there will be minister of state who are also members of parliament who sit there together with the others to come up with the conclusion that will be taken to parliament. So that document is taken to parliament. They will follow the document to parliament. So those members of parliament who happen to be ministers would now take this document, their arguments, to the floor of parliament to try and convince their colleagues that what they have brought from cabinet is what should pass, what should be agreed upon. Now you have brought the executive and made them sit in parliament and become one with members of parliament. But all of their influence, all of their resources, and everything that they come with, including their politics. Now, there's another element in this. If you go to section, eight, section 111, that's 111, section 111 of the same constitution, chapter eight, there's a, a heading attendance in parliament of vice president and ministers. So this section says, and I'm quoting, the vice president or a minister or deputy minister who is not a member of parliament shall be entitled to participate in the proceedings of parliament and shall be accorded all the privileges of a member of parliament except that he is not entitled to vote or to hold an office in parliament. So we've appointed somebody, a minister of state. And what we're saying is that that minister of state, who is not a member of parliament, can come to parliament and sit there and participate in the proceedings of parliament, argue with members of parliament, uh, ask to be allowed to speak, to make a statement, do any and everything that other members of parliament or, or members of parliament are entitled to do in their own chamber, except that that person cannot vote. 
but they can sit there, they can influence, they can try and, and argue and do any and everything for the executive, sitting in parliament, sitting in parliament. And the interesting thing, which I've also said before, is the minister of, ministers of state tend to be given priority even in the seating arrangement. So they tend to be seated to the front, to the front, in the front benches of parliament. Now, when you sit closer to the front, you, you are more likely to, as they say, catch the eye of the speaker of parliament and be called upon to speak. So you see, a minister of state, whether a member of parliament or not, is entitled to go and sit in parliament and essentially behave, conduct themselves, do whatever it is that a member of parliament can and should do, except that they cannot vote. So where, where is the separation of powers, of duties? How can you ensure that there is accountability? Who accounts to whom when they're all sitting together? How does that work? And you see, we send people to parliament to go and enact laws, to review the activities, not only of the whole administration, the presidency or the executive, but also the conduct, the plans, the activities of the various ministries, agencies, and departments. So if those who sit as the heads of these ministries are also members of parliament and can come and sit in parliament and engage in, in debate with other, the, all the other members of parliament, where is the accountability? How do you hold people to account for their actions, their activities, and so on and so forth? How do we do that in real life? In Ghana, we have many, many competent men and women who can fill the Chamber of Parliament and who can also fill the seats allotted for people to become ministers of state. So why don't we do ourselves a favor by letting the politicians, those who should really engage um, sometimes in partisan politics for their political parties, but to represent all of the people in their constituencies, let them sit in parliament and perhaps, just perhaps, and hopefully, let's get people with competence in subject areas, competence in areas of responsibility to become ministers of state so that a minister of energy, 
should be somebody who has some experience, some education in an area, not necessarily as a, a petroleum or a power expert, but in an area um, where the, the individual can appreciate fully what is supposed to be done in the area of energy. And of course, if they've had some sort of experience and training and education um, in power, petroleum, and so on and so forth, that would be a plus. Why are we behaving as if, oh, just anybody, anybody at all, can be sent to any ministry because there are technical people who are there? Who listens to the technical people in the way that we are behaving with the politics in the country called Ghana? So you send somebody whose main qualification is that he's been able to play the partisan game well, or, or not necessarily partisan, but has been able to play the political game well and garner or get enough votes to be elected to parliament, whatever their qualification might be, send them to any ministry. Send them to any ministry. Finance, education, energy, social welfare, education, again, finance, energy, important ministries, um, foreign affairs, defense, interior. The only ministry that I see that frequently we're putting people with appropriate training and education and experience happens to be consistently Minister of Justice and Attorney General where we have had lawyers to fill that position. But everything else, we have had university lecturers as Minister of Energy who don't have any background to speak of or education in that area. And we have all manner of different people in all of these ministries. The point I'm trying to make is that it would serve, I believe, it would serve the interests of the country better if we have people with good technical backgrounds related to those ministries they are assigned to. And if those people would also be put there to spend their full time, 100%, on the affairs and the duties and responsibilities of those ministries, but not to be part-time ministers and part-time members of parliament. As I have said, I've been a minister of state and a member of parliament. And I'll tell you, the work of any ministry, and I was at economic planning and regional cooperation, I was at public sector reform, and I was at energy, all of those ministries and the others need somebody's full-time attention. So if you put me as a member of parliament 
in a ministry as a minister of state, where should my priority go? Ministries need day-to-day supervision, attention, policy-making, and direction. So if I have to split my time against the priorities of parliament, the priorities of the ministry, in the case of the ministry, I'm responsible to the president. The president, when the president demands my time, it's not like the, in parliament where all of those people are sitting back home. And if I go to parliament, um, yes, I can engage in some debate. Um, it is not compulsory in parliament to stand up and speak on every item, every topic. But the Minister of State, when the President demands your attention, that's where you go. That's where the priority is. So the duties of a parliamentarian gets to be second priority. So why, why not separate the two and make sure that we will have members of parliament who will devote full time and attention to those duties and examine thoroughly, properly, what comes from the executive, what comes from cabinet, what comes from the presidency. Because quite often throughout this fourth republic, we all know there have been what have been, what have been said to be important, important bills passed to go and look for money from somewhere. And we have tended to go and look for the monies in the wrong places. Well, there's what everybody knows, where some monies were supposedly um, to be found in places that had addresses that may be uh, housed Barbershops, small offices, personal offices, and so on and so forth. Who were the people in parliament to, to do the proper scrutiny? Why is it that laws are passed? And then people turn around to wonder, how did this law get passed? Who did the scrutinizing? How were these petroleum assets? How, how, how were they agreed to, to, be, to be given to certain parties? How did we pass certain bills to go and look for some monies from China and elsewhere for all those things to turn out not to be what they were made out to be? Who did the scrutinizing in Parliament? So I'm saying, let's make sure we have full-time people to sit there to become members of Parliament and full-time people to sit there and become Minister of State because the burden of running a country like Ghana is not a little one. The task 
is a huge one. The responsibility um, is big. And we need people with the right expertise, the right qualification and training to be put in those positions. And not just because somebody happens to be a good politician. Good politician. And a related matter, let me just bring it up. Again, you go to the Constitution, Chapter 8, the area called Settlement of Financial Matters, Section 108. It does say, and I'm quoting again, that Parliament shall not, unless the bill is introduced or the motion is introduced by or on behalf of the President, one, proceed upon a bill, including an amendment to a bill, that in the opinion of the person presiding makes provision for any of the following, the imposition of taxation or the alteration of taxation otherwise than by reduction or two, the imposition of a charge on the cons consolidated fund or other public funds of Ghana or the alteration of any such charge otherwise than by reduction. Or three, the payment, issue, or withdrawal from the consolidated fund or other public funds of Ghana or any monies not charged on the consolidation. You, you know, the, the point I'm trying to make is that this constitution also ties the hands of parliament. It gives more weight to the executive, the presidency, the cabinet than to parliament when it comes to money matters. Basically, it is saying that if Parliament believes that some area needs more money than another area, that Parliament cannot add any more money to any area. It can reduce or suggest a reduction, but can't add. That it can't alter taxation other than by redu other, other than reducing it, okay, other, other than reducing it, or impose any charge on the consolidated fund or any other public funds of Ghana, other than by reducing it. So what is Parliament there to do? What is there to do? What is it there to do? So again, I'm just focusing on this one item, the item that I'm calling to consolidate, to strengthen the powers of parliament and make the parliament become strong enough, make parliament uh, become relevant enough, make parliament to become the destination, not just the route to becoming a minister of state, because many people Knowing that the, the Constitution says the majority of ministers of state must come from within Parliament, they feel the best way to go through to become a minister of state is to become a member of Parliament. They are not going there necessarily to become lawmakers. So they don't want to go and sit there and spend their time, sit in Parliament day in and day out, 
think about what laws to, 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 to offer or how to examine what is brought by the executive or make proper contributions in terms of the review of the activities of ministries, departments, and agencies. No, that's not where they're, why they go there. Many of them, they want to be made ministers of state. And if, should they not become a minister of state, they want to become members of boards of directors of state agencies or, or organizations. And with that, we rubbish the authority of parliament. So if you strengthen parliament, by necessity, you also, you also strengthen the executive. Because the hope then is that the president, his or her hands are not tied. That they don't have to go to parliament to find people to become ministers of state. That they can look for technocrats, experts, experts, people who are qualified in the, in the areas of energy, finance, education, and so on and so forth, and put them there and make them accountable, make them responsible, make them spend their full-time attention for the benefit of the country. So that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm hoping, that this Fix the Constitution movement that has been going on, that comes every now and then. And I do know that under the late President Mills, there was an attempt. There was an attempt to review the Constitution to change it. There was an attempt that was also taken up to some extent also by former President John Mahama. Indeed, in, in the last four years, there was an attempt at amending one portion, one side of the Constitution to elect municipal, metropolitan, and district chief executives. But that didn't go anywhere, just as the other ones didn't go anywhere. And why, why didn't they result in change? Change that we need. And I am suggesting straightforward, directly. One way to fix the Constitution is to separate the authority, the responsibility of Parliament, the legislature, from that of the executive, the presidency, the cabinet. And this country we call Ghana would be better off for it. And in the end, we will all say, God bless Ghana, because the results, the results will be good. And the results will favor, will favor each and every one that calls themselves citizen of the Republic of Ghana. This has been 
fresh matters and I am Papa Kwesi Endom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fresh Matters. You can listen to all the other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. God bless you.